0: Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to give you a Bible. Just raise your hand. You can borrow it, or you can keep it if you would like. I hope you all got a chance to read Pastor Bob's email about precautions with the coronavirus, and it's a good reminder for us to just get a perspective. God is on his throne, this world is under his control, and ultimately, he does what he pleases in heaven and earth, and there have been times on this earth when plagues have taken out a lot of people, the book of Revelation speaks of a time when there will be coming future plagues, and ultimately, we want to remember that everything God permits is for his glory and his purposes, even if we don't understand it. And so as Christians, as, as we face this, if we can hold off on that for a moment, Rob, um, thank you. It, it, as we face, you know, a, what could be a really significant pandemic, how should, we, how should we look at this? Well, first of all, our times are in God's hands, and it, it, it's, it's important to know that you know the Lord. Jesus reminded us that this life is brief, and that we, we want to know that we have life beyond this life. So what a hard way to live to live in terror of dying. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Jesus came to destroy Satan's power so that we don't have to live in the bondage of the fear of death. So this doesn't mean to run around and go, I don't care. But at the same time, don't be afraid if you're a Christian. Pray that God will give us peace. At the same time, we also need to think through, okay, let's pray for this world. May this not be in vain. May it not just be Oh, God's up in heaven going, oh, I hope they can find a cure. God is using these things, and hopefully it's drawing people to think about the brevity of life and what happens. Are we ready for, for the coming of the Lord? Am I ready to meet God? So let's pray that this, this virus will, will be under control, but that during this time, many people will come to know the Lord, and that God will use it to revive churches and interestingly, I want you to, in, in a moment, we're going to think about, you know, when the, when the plague went through England, every Christian had a decision to make. Do I leave to protect myself and my family and just let people die in piles? Or do I stay and try to minister to people, knowing that there's a chance that I could get that illness as well? I really had a chance to think about that in the past when I was reading a book. But this morning, we're going to have some fun. God's gone deep. He, he took me apart today, so I'm going to, or, or this week, so I'm just going to let him speak through his word to you as he spoke to me. Um, this is a, a really cool passage. Last week, we, we talked about the anatomy of conversion. So Rob, if you could put that outline up. Thank you so much. We said that Paul's first three chapters is personal recollections, and so he writes chapter one, he says, I thank God for your conversion. And we saw three things about it. We said, we know that God causes our conversion because he chose us and he uses his word in the spirit. We saw that change follows it. If you're truly converted, then you're going to be growing in faith, hope, and love. You're going to want to share the gospel. There's things that will change in your life and ultimately praise results for it. But I want you to begin this morning in chapter 1, verse 5, because the next thing Paul's going to talk about is his conduct. And he dropped a hint in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says... Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says this, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Why did he, why did he add that? He said, I, I want to remind, you know, you remember how we were. And not just how we were, but why we were for your sake. This section, he's now going to develop that. And I think there's a very specific reason But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, we know that the spirit of God wants to speak to our hearts. As Christians, he feeds us. You change us. You encourage us. You convict us. You strengthen your church through the word of God. So may all of us grow and and may you speak freely from your word to help us to change. And may people come to know you and may others all of us be be maturing in our Christian faith. We depend on your spirit. We pray for this world, that many people will come to Christ, and that you will stem the tide of this pandemic virus that's spreading. In Jesus' name, amen. Back then, they didn't have rock stars, and people didn't wear the name of their favorite athlete on their toga. The rock stars at that time were philosophers, traveling itinerant speakers. Like, it wasn't like you could go to a concert, but these traveling itinerant speakers would come into town. They would announce ahead of time, he's coming and he's going to speak. And some of them made big money when they came, just like we greet our rock stars, they would make a big fuss and, and have a big celebration, welcoming them, and then everyone would want to come and hear them speak, and, and so knowing that that was the case, some of them were sincere. They were, you know, you've heard of you know, philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, some of them, I'm not necessarily saying they were, but in general, they really wanted to help people. But it didn't take long for a lot of guys to look at that and go, hey, I could do that, and wow, what a way to make money. What, I would like people to praise me, and so it wasn't long till there were lots of hucksters who were, who were doing this. So what would happen is they would come into town and they would fleece people. Satan was always trying to mess up Paul when he would come into town and preach the gospel and make disciples, after he would leave, Satan would start using people to raise rumors against Paul. So the Jews would always raise rumors that he's, he's teaching you, you could do whatever you want, he's not from God. But the Gentiles began to spread rumors about Paul that he was just a charlatan, that he was like a, a slick snake oil salesman. He just came to town to get your money. And as, we, as you think about that, when we read these verses, it'll give you the background. There was a, 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 a philosopher named Dio Christostom. He wasn't a Christian. He lived from 40 to 115 A.D. So he was living at the same time as Paul. Not a Christian at all, but he, he said this, and he was a philosopher, but he said this about other philosophers. He said, find a man who without guile speaks his mind frankly, And he doesn't do it for the sake of reputation. He doesn't do it for false pretensions, but just out of goodwill and concern for his fellow man. And he's willing to be ridiculed. He's willing to to face the uproar of the mob. To find a man like that's not easy. It is the good fortune of a very lucky city to find someone like that. So apparently what people were saying to the Thessalonians, now that Paul's gone, is he, he's just, he was just trying to get your money. And so this morning's message, as Paul rehearses his conduct, and about five times in this chapter, in this section, he goes, you know, you remember, you know, God's a witness, you know, you remember. His purpose here is to demonstrate the sincerity of his character. But here's what we're going to learn this morning. We're going to learn two things about discipleship we're going to talk about the motives of discipleship and the methods of discipleship. You say, well, why? Because our vision is to advance the gospel to make disciples who make disciples. Motives matter, and our methods matter. So imagine we're gathered, we get this letter from Paul, so I'm going to read it, and then we'll pay attention here. Look at what he says about his motives and his methods. So I'm going to comment as I read this, And then we'll loop around and talk about it. So he says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now that word coming means our visit. Think back. My time with you was not without results. He goes, in fact, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. When Paul arrived at Thessalonica, he still had scabs all over his back. Because in the book of Acts, we read that while he was in Philippi, he was shamefully treated totally illegally. He was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were never to be exposed to this. It was called Lictoris. They had these long rods, almost like bamboo rods, and they would beat you on the back in front of everybody, strip you down and humiliate you, but also beat you half to death. And Paul had experienced this tremendous, not only pain, but public shame and insult, and everybody knew about it. I mean, this would be totally humiliating. This would, maybe, maybe this is going too far, but almost being exposed for some sexual sin, and everybody knows about it, and everybody's insulting you. So Paul says, you remember when I first came, he said, I had been mistreated, but I had been insulted. And in that culture, a shame culture, to have been publicly insulted was a big deal. He said, but nevertheless, we had the boldness to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You see, back then, not every philosopher that came to town, people cheered for them. Sometimes they would ridicule them, beat them, right? So it wasn't like Paul was getting cheered by everyone in Thessalonica. But he says in verse 3 Our exhortation, which is an interesting word for sharing the gospel, our urging of you, it didn't come from error. In other words, I, I wasn't making up lies, it didn't come from impurity about motives here it didn't come by way of deceit so when I brought you this message he says the reason I brought you this message verse 4 is because I have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not as pleasing men but God who examines our hearts so you remember when I was with you I wasn't trying to get anything from you And now he goes on. Look at verse 5. In fact, he says, we never came with flattering speech. We never came with flattering speech. Truly interesting. These philosophers, they knew how to flatter people and they did it on purpose. I'm going to read you a quote in a little bit. We didn't come with a pretext for greed. We We weren't like the TV evangelist who no matter what he's preaching on, within minutes, he goes from the Bible to your wallet. Send me money. He says... And and even though you didn't see it, God didn't see it either, God is a witness. He says, and also, here's another thing, I didn't seek glory from men, I I wasn't there, I didn't ask for a big round of applause. I didn't seek it from you or others. Although, he goes, you know, when you think about it, I'm an apostle, and as an apostle, we might have asserted our authority. That that word means we, we might have kind of thrown our weight around Literally has a word of weight, like like I could have kind of said, Hey, I'm an apostle, but he goes, I didn't do that. But instead, as he's talked about his motives, he says, Remember my methods. Look at verse 7. He says, When we were with you, we proved to be gentle among you, like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. In fact, he said, we had such a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to to impart to you, not just the gospel, but, but we wanted to share our own lives with you because you had become very dear to us. Now notice he says it again, verse nine, you recall, he keeps saying it, you're a witness, you know, you recall, so he goes remember, remember our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul was a tent maker. And contracted laborers at that time worked from sunup till sundown. They didn't have eight-hour days. And even in the Bible, it doesn't say, five days are made for labor, and the second two you shall rest. So Paul was probably working all day long as a tent maker. But in addition to that, He says, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he had a full-time job, probably working 50 hours a week, plus ministry, even though he's saying, I didn't have to do that. I could have just asked you to, to pay my way. In fact, he stayed in the house of Jason. We read that in the book of Acts. He wouldn't even let Jason give him meals without paying for him. He insisted to Jason, every day that I eat, I'm keeping a tab and I'm paying for it. He says, you recall how we work night and day. Verse 10, you are witnesses how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave towards you. Look at verse 11. Just as you know. It's a really interesting verse. Three terms that he uses for his discipleship. We were exhorting, which has the idea of, of urging people. We were encouraging that word sometimes is translated consoling, like, like when someone's hurt. We were imploring, that word means to insist, each one of you as a father would his own children. Remember how we would do this, always telling you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Does anybody remember what we're calling this series? Walking Worthy. Right, This is, Paul says, I am always encourage you to walk worthy. So let, let's loop back around and talk about this. Every one of us as a Christian should be trying to disciple other people. This doesn't mean you're pastors. Even as a parent, you're trying to disciple your children. So we're always trying to become like Jesus, but trying to help others. So what we want to start with is we want to talk about motives. And let's begin by looking at wrong motives. There was a a phony philosopher back then who, who was unashamed to even say, this is what I do. His name was Eupolis. This is what he said. When I catch sight of a man who is rich, I get my hooks in him. And if this money bag happens to say anything, I praise him and I express my amazement at whatever he says, pretending to find delight in his words. Sometimes we forget that God's not just concerned with what we do, but why we do it. The Bible says one day when we stand before Christ, this is Christians, God will disclose the things we did in secret. So if you're Christian, you got a double life going on. That's not a good idea. But then it also says this, and he will disclose the motives of our hearts. So it's not just what we do, but why we do it. And frankly, all of us, because we're sinners, have wrong motives at times. And this is where God's word pierces to the soul and spirit and shows us, like, hey, Tom, you got to work on this. I'd like to suggest that three of the most prominent motives back then, and I'll just put it in slang, were gold, girls, and glory. Okay? So anytime time... People do things for some sort of financial benefit. That's a bad motive, okay? People do that at work. People do that with their neighbors. Jesus said, don't invite rich people to your house just so they can invite you, right? It goes back to way back when you were a little kid, when you make friends with the kid who has a pool in the summer. Then when we get a little older, you never call your friends in Florida all summer, but in winter, hey, we were gonna swing through. Do you know a really cheap hotel down there, right? We have to check our motives. It doesn't stop at the doors of the church. James chapter two says, if a rich man comes into your church and you treat him special, you're judges with evil motives. So notice how Paul says, hey, listen, my message did not have false motives. So so let's just briefly look at this. He says, number one, my message, verse three, did not come from impurity or deceit. And so the idea of impurity there is, unfortunately, people can use ministry, Christianity, as a way to take advantage of people sexually. That's, that's pretty sick, but it's, but it's true. I once heard a story of a, of a pastor who used to counsel women, but he would ask them to sit on his lap when he counseled them. That's sick. Paul says, I didn't have any desire to take advantage of women. In fact, 2 Timothy talks about men who will take advantage of of women creeping into their houses because people in their most vulnerable time, sometimes under the guise of spirituality, can be taken advantage of. So Paul says, none of that. You know my motives weren't impure. Secondly, though, he says in verse five, we never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed. So when it came to financial gain, he says, no, you you know that that I wouldn't take a dime from you, I paid for my own food, I worked extra hard, I didn't wanna burden you, even though I could have expected you to at least support me. But third, he says, we didn't seek glory from men. Now, if you can tell me how to completely cure yourself of wanting to, to be noticed by others, I would like to hear that. Because all of us want to be noticed. We like to be praised. It starts very early. As soon as a, a child notices what they're good at or, or people tell them, you're so pretty or you're so funny or you're so athletic, soon, because of our fallen nature, we, we can begin to, to use the gifts of God to feed on the praise of men. This is an epidemic. Everyone suffers from it. Jesus was, when he was on earth, in the Gospel of John, three times he addressed this. He said in John 5, he said, "'How can you believe in me when you're worried "'about receiving glory from one another and not from God?' Before we go, that's right, Jesus, tell them." It's like, you're right, Jesus, tell us. Jesus says in John 7, He who speaks from his own self, he seeks his own glory. But not me. I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me. They told Jesus in John 8, you have a demon. He said, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. I don't seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Paul says, we didn't seek glory from men. You ever heard the phrase not to mention? That's a... That's a dumb phrase, right? Because it literally is about to say, I'm gonna mention, right? My wife and my kids nail me on this. They say, Dad, don't you dare give some analogy where you go, when I was cleaning the kitchen, they're like, you're just trying to get praise from people, right? <laughs> tough. It's a tough crowd, a prophet's not without honor except in his own household, right? So we all have to, we have to search our hearts and say, when I do anything for Christ, Am I disappointed if people don't say, that was great? Or do I feed on that compliment? And it doesn't just have to be in Christianity. We're in recovery from wanting to please men, okay? Now, in case you go, oh, I don't resonate with this. All right, how about if this, do you resonate with this? What's the number one reason I think Christians don't witness to others? Because they're afraid of what people will think of them. You're still worried about getting glory from men. You wanna be liked more than you wanna please God. And so these motives, we all have to go, Lord, forgive me. There are times that I do things, even the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And so let's pray that God will continue to work in our hearts, that we will grow in grace as we work on our motives. So those are the wrong motives. Gold, girls, glory, and there can be other motives. But then the right motive, look in verse 4. Here's the right motive. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. The right motive, and it doesn't happen overnight, is to learn to try to do everything we do to please God. To please God. Now, it's easy to say, right? Oh, yeah, well, let's go on and please God. But everything, this is a, a big theme of Paul in the New Testament." Pray, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will so you'll please God in every respect. So, I shouldn't be too concerned about what people think of me, but I am, aren't you? What I should always ask myself is, did I do what God wanted me to do? Or was I more worried about what people wanted me to do? I see this, for example, when Christians won't confront another Christian. Well, I know how that'll go. They're going to get mad at me well, who are you trying to please? Them or God? And so we need to continually be asking ourselves, Lord, help me to, to live my life to please you, the, the things I do in secret, but also the things I do for others. So Paul says, those were my, my motives, but now let's talk about his methods because ultimately God is not just concerned about what we do but who we are as a person. Character matters. When Paul said in chapter one, you know what kind of a, an entrance, a visit, you, you know what an impact we had? He says part of it was, he said, because you know what kind of people we were. God does not use all believers equally. The Lord sets apart godly people for himself. Second Timothy describes it this way. It says, if you cleanse yourselves from these things, that, that Paul warned Timothy, like lust and money, he goes, you'll be useful to the master. So I want to encourage you to consider that as you're growing in your ability and desire to disciple people, that the number one thing we need to think about is our character. And so let's talk about the methods that Paul used. Number one, his first method was to really try to be sincerely godly. Okay, look in verse 10. You are witnesses how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave toward you. Before he was concerned about what he did, he was concerned about who he was. Now listen, this doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. We, we, we constantly are thinking about and praying about having more elders, right? Man, I want to encourage you to pray about becoming an elder. If it's for the right reason, that's a wonderful thing. 1 Timothy says, if any man desires to be an elder, that's a good thing. But it says, an elder must be blameless and above reproach. That doesn't mean you never mess up. Are you sincere? If you mess up, do you admit it? If you mess up, is it a a constant habit? You go, I can't, it's just the way I am. Or are you growing in a desire to be godly, honest, sincere, devout? Not just when people are watching. But then there's some very specific things that you and I could work on, and I want to challenge you with these. Number one, if you're going to be a disciple maker, you have to be daring. What does that mean? Look what Paul says. He said in verse 2, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. What does it mean to be daring as a Christian? That word boldness is to, is to venture to speak, right? I want, I want you to understand something. If you're waiting till you're not afraid to witness to people, you're missing the point. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is is daring to be bold when you are afraid, okay? So don't go, well, someday when I'm not afraid to talk to anybody about Jesus, I'll just do it. That's not courage. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, when I was with you, I was in fear and trembling, but he was daring to begin to talk to people about Christ. And I think that's one of the greatest things we need in Christianity in America. We all buy into this idea of just be nice and witness by your life. We don't need to be obnoxious, but we need to be bold to try to speak about Christ. You don't have to stand on the street corner, but every one of you has people in your life who you've never, ever said a word to about Christ, and you're around them day and night. Be daring and bold to ask permission. Could I share with you some time? But notice that this daringness is a dependent daring. Look what Paul says. says, we had the boldness in our God. The boldness in our God. So you're not just going, come on, we could do it, let's go do this. We're pray- I pray all the time, God, give me boldness. That's what Paul, t- Paul begged, Lord, give me boldness. The Holy Spirit will give you courage, but you have to be daring, you have to be willing. One time I was walking down the hall of a hospital, and, and, and I, I saw this grieving family, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I wanted to speak to them. I didn't know what to say. So I just walked by, and I got to about the drinking fountain, and I just felt like, Tom, go talk to them. I'm like, what am I going to say? I don't know what I'm going to say. And I literally, I was like, okay, Lord, I don't even know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to go back there. And I, I just said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a pastor, and you oh, I can't do that. Well, you're not a pastor. But I said, hey, I, it seems like some. Can I pray for you guys? Now, you always expect every story to say, and they all said, Jesus, come in my heart. No, of course not. So here's the thing. You don't have to be standing on the train station, but God wants each one of us to be willing to be bold to speak the gospel. And you say, well, what if they get mad? What if they don't like me? What if they don't talk to me? Get in line. They didn't like Jesus either. And he said, "Then they probably won't like you. All who de- when Jesus said, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted, that has to include speaking the gospel. Because I know a lot of people who live blameless, nice, moral lives who are so blameless, and everyone loves them. They're never persecuted because they don't speak. So let's pray that as a church, we will learn to be daring, a dependent daring. Number two as disciples, we have to learn to be parental. There's so many family terms here. I hope he caught that. So let's talk about some of these parental terms. First of all, as you and I are working with other people, we need to learn to be gentle like a mother. Look how he says this. He says in verse 7, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. In fact, that word translated gentle can there's two different Greek words that are in different manuscripts. It could be, we, we prove to be infants among you. But he compares it to a nursing mother. And I want you to think about, what does a nursing mother do? It says, she tenderly cares for her children. That word is a word that means to keep warm. It's used of a mother bird nourishing and keeping warm her child. This is the word that's used of husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Nourish in church, like gentle gentle, caring, nurturing with people that we're discipling. A sweet spirit, not a harshness. So, gentle like a mother. Secondly, another part of being parental is to be lovingly sacrificial. Look at this, this word in verse eight. He says, having thus a fond affection for you. This is a very unusual Greek word. It, it's, it's, it's only used here in the New Testament. It literally means to greatly long for you. In fact, one place where it's used, and and, and this resonated in my soul, any of you who are grieving the loss of a loved one, this word, to long for someone, was used in a funerary inscription that tells how the parents long for their deceased child. Anyone who's lost someone, you know how you long for them. That's how Paul felt about discipling people. He said, I have this parental love for them. And, and, And to be honest, I don't feel that way at times. I'm like, I don't care about people, but Christ does, and so I say, Lord Jesus, work through me to love people, to love them for real, to love them deeply, right? Paul said to the Philippians, I long for you with the affections of Christ. Jesus is, letting, is, is wanting us to let him use our hands and feet to love people. Now, notice, lovingly sacrificial, Paul says, like a mother, we had this longing for you, and we were well-pleased to impart to you our own lives. Listen, fellas, hands down, we got it way easier than our wives when it comes to raising children. I've stayed home all day with the babies, and when my wife comes home and says, where's dinner, And, and why is the house a mess? And I'm going, well, I was watching the kids. You know the old adage, a man may work from son to son, but mother's work is never done, and so discipling people often involves sacrifice, it's inconvenient, I was so thankful, my wife just celebrated her 40, or I'm not allowed to lie, I have to be sincere, she celebrated her birthday, and, and her kids, her kids, each one went around and said, mom, this is one of the things, we have a, when we have a birthday, we tell what we love about a person, not why we love them, I love you because, and it's, performance-based, but things we love about them. Each of the kids said, Mom, I love how much you've always sacrificed for us. It was always about us. And so, so think about that. Do you care about anybody in this church or care about other people enough to lovingly sacrifice? He says, we were well-pleased to impart our very life to you. To, 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 if they call me later, ah, call me another time. If they need a ride, ah, I, I can't help you. So so Paul is, is showing us that we need to be gentle like a mother, lovingly sacrificial. In fact, he says, I don't want to be a burden to you. That's what parents do, right? We don't want to burden our kids. We want to take their burdens. And so let's ask God to help us to care about other people like this. But the third one's really cool. The third parenting illustration is this. Regularly providing Father-like input. Regularly providing father-like input. When I disciple people, as I'm trying to help people to grow, I want to be daring, but I want to be parental. Now notice, by the way, here's a little clue. This verse we're going to look at, you you can apply this to parenting as well. In fact, I wrote in my notes, I even apply it to grandparenting. I only wish that I had learned this sooner, because one of the things that God convicted me about, and I've already talked hard with my son about this, because you know my son was very difficult, And, and, and in my frustration of not knowing what to do with him, I was a bully, I was harsh, I was very stern, and I thought, the rod will heal this. I didn't realize, and I learned, and God's been gracious, and I asked his forgiveness, and some of you dads might have to do the same thing, But look at how Paul gives us this idea of providing father-like input. If there's people in your life that you're discipling them, look what he says, just as you know, like a father would his own children, he did three things. He said, I exhorted, encouraged, and implored. In Ted Tripp's, or Paul Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity, if you've got teenagers, get it. I'll say it again, Age of Opportunity. He talks about this verse. We all have one method of speaking to our kids, lecture. And you know what it sounds like to them? Like on Charlie Brown, blah, blah, blah. But notice what fatherly input is. It's a regular, consistent. Exhorting has the idea of urging people to do the right thing. This word encouraging, literally, it's usually used of consoling someone because they're in pain, right? And then the third one, He says, I exhorted, I encouraged, and I implored you. And that word implored means to insist. In Roman families, fathers were severe and harsh. But the Greek moralist Plutarch said that a father shouldn't use beatings, but he should use reason and exhortation and counsel, that he should use praise for good conduct to instruct his children. This is embarrassing in American culture. Because the average dad spends a few minutes with his kid every day, if that. And Oh, so I'm more about quality time than quantity time. Mm-mm. We need to be regularly involved. I remember the Lord awakened me as a, as, as a, as a young father. My, my son was getting in trouble at school all the time and, and I would lay in bed and I would talk to him about it and I'd say, well, why do you keep doing this? He goes, dad, maybe I just need somebody to talk to me about it every day. And it was at that point I said, I'm not, I'm not continuing in my doctoral program. I'm teaching, I'm pastoring, and I'm taking classes, and my son's getting in trouble all the time and he wants to know why someone's not telling him every day. Right, so we're all in this together, and, and this isn't to beat up on dads, but it's encouraging. And think about the application. As a friend, if I'm a discipler, am I encouraging people when I see good things happening in their lives? I just told a brother recently, I said, ma'am, I see so much love in you, you're really growing. Am I consoling people when I see them struggling? But am I sometimes admonishing, insisting, and urging them towards godly behavior? Sometimes we do need to reprove people. Finally, our method needs to be purposeful. Paul had two very clear goals in mind. So he says, listen, as I disciple people, I try not to do it for wrong motives, but here's what I do, I'm sincere, I'm parental. But the next one is that it's purposeful. has two clear goals. Number one is to communicate the gospel to everyone who will listen. Listen, that's our privilege. That's not my responsibility. I love doing it. I have the gift of evangelism. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism. Paul said we have been entrusted with the gospel. God has given you the privilege to share this message. Imagine having the cure for cancer and your friends around you have cancer, and you go, I ain't offering them one of them shots, they might laugh at me, right? It is a privilege, but it's also a stewardship that we do everything we can to try to impart the gospel. In fact, the very word that he uses there when he says we were well placed to impart to you the gospel, the word there doesn't mean to communicate. This really was an insight that struck me. We use the phrase, hey, did you share the gospel? But what we mean by share the gospel is blah, blah, blah. I shared the gospel. But the word impart, when he says I imparted you the gospel in this passage, literally means to share something like, hey, look, here's some food. Can I share it with you? Hey, look, I just found a treasure chest full of gold. Can I share some with you? The gospel is precious. Precious. The gospel is the only thing that will keep a person from hell. The gospel gives people hope. It gives them forgiveness. People are burdened and weighed down. They're not all screaming, give me the gospel, but we know that's what they need. Will you please reach into the treasure chest and try to share it? If you can walk by a homeless guy and hand him a sandwich because you feel bad for him, why can't we walk by our friends and say, hey, can sometime we talk about the Lord So Paul felt a real purposeful stewardship to share the gospel. But secondly, he didn't just get soul scalps. Once people became Christians, his purpose was to seek to help them walk worthy. So I wanna close in this verse. He says, so that you walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, right now, this world is the devil's kingdom. The prince of the darkness is in charge under God And most people are held captive by him but every one of us who's a christian has been transferred out of the devil's kingdom into god's kingdom now we're behind enemy lines and our goal against opposition of satan in this world in the flesh is to reach others we have a new king king jesus so we walk worthy of that god who did what who called us to his kingdom and glory one of the reasons there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America, living together, lying, stealing, fornicating, living just like the world. And then we say, "You want to be a Christian?" and they're going, "Why?" And so I want to urge you and urge me and pray for me and all of us, to live lives worthy of God, so that as we invite people to come under the reign of the precious King Jesus, who's coming with his kingdom, that we might be reminded that God cares how we live. And so this morning, I hope God stirs all of us. Maybe there's some secret motives you need to get right with God. Maybe there's some blatant secret living that you wanna get right with God. But I hope all of us are motivated as parents and as brothers and sisters to say, let's disciple people. Let's advance the gospel and disciple people. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, come talk to us. We wanna tell you how you can know that God will forgive you completely and you will become a child of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so good. Thank you for Paul's amazing example to us. I'll be the first one in the confession booth to ask you to forgive me, Lord. My motives are not always right. And and Lord, I, I hate that. You must increase, we must decrease. Lord, I don't love people near as much as I want to. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I genuinely care more about others than myself. Pour out on our church a fresh desire to disciple people. May we be parental. May every parent and grandparent here be very purposeful. And may each of us, as we leave today, be reminded that we have a privilege to share the gospel. May we be daringly dependent. And may we truly desire to walk worthy and help others to do the same. Move in our church, Lord, that the gospel might continue to advance and more and more people come to know Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, have a wonderful day.